Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. We would love to have you partner with us in feeding our neighbors for the next year. Last year at this time, we said that we would love to gain, to have you guys give enough money so that we wouldn't ask for money again for the entire year for feeding people in our community. And we actually did that, which is really awesome. And so we said this time, how about if we ask for even more money so that we can grow it and we can reach even more people? So that's what we're going for. We want to raise $5,000 to feed 130 families at Thanksgiving this year, which is, I think, 20 more families than we did last year. So we are, we're going for it with Thanksgiving baskets, uh, and we want to raise $15,000 to be able to grow our mobile food pantry to, to uh, be able to add people from our wait list onto the actual delivery list uh, and to be able to really love on our neighbors. So what I would ask for you to do is to think and pray about how much God wants you to give towards this. Maybe an easy way to do it is to figure out what your daily salary is. If we all gave one day's wage, we would raise enough money to be able to love on our neighbors for an entire year. It's actually a real figure that would work. Uh, So we can go at it that way. Or if Jesus is like, no, you need to give more, I won't step in the way of what Jesus is telling you to do. So I will leave that between you and him. Uh, But this is an awesome way to be able to love on our community. And so I want to invite you to do that with us this year. Well, again, welcome to everybody who's online. Uh, We're grateful that you're here, and we hope that you do encounter Jesus wherever it is that you're at, uh, and whatever it is that you're going through this morning, that you will encounter Jesus in that and be aware of his presence this morning. So, again, my name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the book of Romans today, and that's where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible, open up to Romans 4. We're going to start off there. In Romans 4, 1 through 5, as we continue in this series. This is what it says. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, but that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. What a powerful just statement to to think about as we start off this morning. John Wimber, who was one of the founders of this group that we're a part of called the, called the Vineyard, uh, he had this phrase, which a lot of people repeat his phrases now, and everybody's like, I have no idea what that actually means. So, but his phrase was this, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled risk. And what he's pointing to is to people like Abraham, people who lived this out, who lived their lives filled with faith, and that led them to risk in really big ways. He was encouraging us to live out our faith in a way that requires a willingness to trust in the goodness of God and in the plan of God, to recognize the call of Jesus in our lives. For you and for I, this may be really like risk doesn't always have to be like super crazy out there. It could be as simple as this. 
you're talking to somebody and they mention that they're sick and you say, can I pray for you like right now? And then you actually do. Or maybe you're talking to your neighbor and they're talking about how they're struggling and the invitation to risk for you is to say, you know, this time I, I went through this experience in my life and Jesus met me in the middle of it. Let me tell you a little bit about the story of what Jesus did and how I encountered him. Faith may look like that for us. Or for some of us, it may look a little bit more extreme. I don't know, if you've been around the church for a while, you probably have images of extreme followers of Jesus in your mind when I say that. Uh, I think most of us do. One of the people I think about is a woman named Jackie Pollinger. So Jackie Pollinger, 55 years ago, moved to Hong Kong. And you'll hear a little bit of her story in a minute. But she moved there to uh, love on drug addicts in the walled city of Hong Kong. Not the nice part, uh, the not nice part. And she has seen thousands of people be freed from addiction through her ministry, which is really, really amazing. And what she does when people come to their doorsteps is she prays over them. She invites the Holy Spirit to come. And then they sit beside people as they're going through detox for 10 days. 10 days, 24 hours a day, they pray over them, they invite the Holy Spirit to come, and they ask Jesus to bring freedom. That's pretty extreme, and it's pretty awesome because it's worked so many times. So many people have been freed from addiction in life-changing and really powerful ways. And so I wanted us to hear a little bit of her story from her own mouth. With that, turn to the screen. not to use years, but, but 50 plus years in, in Hong Kong, amazing ministry. But that, that initial tug or pull or push to, to go out onto the mission field, I would imagine a lot of your friends and family, that would have created lots of different reactions. Did it? And was everybody, yes, go for it, Jackie, or was there a lot of different mixed emotions? And how did you navigate that? Actually, it was very easy. Um, I, the whole thing was very easy. Okay. I mean, one, one, once, once it was clear that I should go, because God had spoken to me through a dream, through a vision, through a message in tongues, um, and then I went to see the vicar, and he said, why don't you get on a boat and pray to know where to get off? Um, and I thought, oh, that sounds very exciting, um, but it must be wrong because I know missionaries have to suffer and that sounds fun, so. Um, but he said, no, it's quite biblical because that's what Abraham did because he didn't know where he was going. So, so that would have been at their expense and I wouldn't have done that. So it was the grace of God. They just, you know, my father wasn't a Christian and he said, um, well, uh, once I got to France, which was where I picked the boat up from, he said, um, well, I may not believe, but I trust in your belief. I thought that was pretty good. Um, and he did actually come, come to Christ before he died. So that was, that was wonderful. Wow. So what, one of the things that you said about that trip was, um, you, you said you, you called up the mission organizations and they were like, well, you've got to be 25, but you, you'd felt, well, Jesus is returning soon. So I wanted to ask this question, one, about that instance, but then over, over your life, how has the, re the return of Jesus been a, been a, had an effect on your ministry? 
Um, I, I think it has to be the same for everyone. If, if you live in the light of eternity, then today is not difficult, uh, whatever today is, because you, you, you're graced for today. And it, it means how you spend your money. You know, you don't have to have a large amount in the bank because if he's coming back next week, he'll feel stupid. So, uh, so you might as well spend it on the poor. Uh, that's it, really. So I'm always thinking um, when he comes back, I'm not afraid of um, seeing him as far as my eternal future is concerned. But I, I've always wanted to answer well for uh, how I use my time um, and how I used his heart, because that's the talent. Mm -hmm. He gave me the best talent was his heart. Like I said, she's a little extreme, and I love it. It's really good. You know, who needs money in the bank? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Let's just live that way, right? Uh, pretty awesome. But at the end there, she talks about the talents. And what she's pointing to there is this uh, story that Jesus tells in the Gospels of a master who's getting ready to go away. And so he calls some of his servants, and he, he gives them some money. And he says, take this and do something with it while I'm gone. And so he leaves, and... And then he's gone for a long time. And, and some of the servants did something with it. And one of the servants didn't do anything with it. If you've read the story, he buried it in the ground, which is a funny thought to us. That's not, you know, maybe that's like putting your money in the bank right now. No, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, he buried it. In, sorry, too, too much. Uh, <laughs> he buried it in the ground and didn't do anything with it. And so the master comes back. And his question wasn't how much money that you made for me. His question was, what did you do with what I gave you? Because in the kingdom of God, what he's telling us, because he's saying, you know, God is the master and we're the servants. We can figure that out, right? But what he's saying is that in the kingdom of God, the issue isn't how successful you are. It's how much that you trust in God with what it is that he's given you. How much you trust in his plan and in his ability to provide and to move and to work in our world. Success isn't the goal. Trust and confidence is. And that's what she's pointing to here. And it's out of that trust that we begin to act. I read a, uh, a uh, part of an address from Billy Graham this week that he gave in 1966 to a bunch of world leaders. And he said this. He said, the harvest is always urgent. Every generation is crucial. Every generation is strategic. But we cannot be responsible for the past generation and we cannot bear full responsibility for the next one. However, we do have our generation. God will hold us accountable for how well we fulfilled our responsibilities and took advantage of our opportunities to share Jesus. We're not responsible for what other people have done. We're not responsible for what other people are going to do. We're not even responsible for the people that are sitting around you right now. What are we responsible for? The thing that Jesus has called us to do. So how are we doing with the thing that Jesus has called us to do? How are we living that out with faith in the ways of Abraham and others that we read about in the Bible, that we see through the lives of people like Jackie Pollinger? How are we living out the call that God has given to us? 
Sarah and I don't have the same call that Rob and Liz Davis, who founded this church, do. And that's good because we're different people. You don't have the same call that the person sitting around you does. And that's good. Even if they're your spouse, they're a different person. You have a different calling. How are you living that out today in your world? You know, we often expect that following God will be terrifying, that it'll be hard in a way that we hate, uh, or that it'll be flat out boring, depending on which side of the coin that you sit on. Uh, But I loved what she said in there about jumping on a boat. Although I find that to be terrifying personally, jumping on a boat without knowing where you're going seems like the worst case scenario, not the best case for me, but, you know, good for her that she finds that exciting. But God called her to do something that she found joy in. And that's something good for us to grab a hold of. The things that Jesus calls you to do are going to fit who you are. They're going to bring joy to your heart. They're not going to bring just pain and suffering. It's going to fill you with joy. It's going to fill you with love. It's going to fill you with a deep, profound excitement for the calling that Jesus has for you. And I want to pray for that for us this morning, that we can be called in the same way that Abraham was, that Jackie was called to do things that bring joy to us as we talk about faith this morning. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come even more right now. Thank you for the good things that you have for us today. And Jesus, I do just pray for the callings that you've placed on our hearts. We each are called to something. It's not all the same, but you've given us specific things to live out ways to live in our world, to share with others the goodness of who you are, ways that bring healing and wholeness to us, that, that restore us, that create in us something that is shareable to the rest of the world. And so I just pray this morning for each and every one of us that we will f- have a deeper sense of joy in the calling that you've given us, that we will have a deeper understanding of the ways that you are with us in the midst of the things that you ask us to do, that you don't just send us on our way and say good luck, but you walk with us each step, just like you did with Abraham. And I pray that this morning that we will be aware of where it is today that you are with us in the things that you are asking us to do. We love you, Jesus. We invite you to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Romans 4 again. Let's continue in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8, where I stopped off and read what it has to say here. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. The first step of living a life of faith is to accept what Jesus has already given you. And what's he tell us that Jesus has already given us? Forgiveness. Forgiveness for the things that you've done, that you know that you've done, that you've chosen to do. Forgiveness for the stuff that you did that you didn't really know what you were doing that you did do anyway. Forgiveness for all of it. And it's a forgiveness that we should accept with what? With deep and profound joy. And it's out of that that we begin to live. Because when we're following Jesus, it's a place of joy, of forgiveness, and of love. But here's the reality. We can choose to live a different way, right? We don't have to choose to follow Jesus. We all know this. This is a pretty obvious thing. 
Uh, you know, there's this book that many of you may have heard of and probably few of you actually read because it's a little bit weird, and that's Through the Looking Glass. It's the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. If you've actually made it all the way through, well done for you because it is super weird. You kind of wonder what was going on with Lewis Carroll at that point. Uh, but in the opening scenes, Alice is in her room doing what all British 12-year-olds do at that time, talking to inanimate objects and animals that are in the room. And so she's talking to her cats, and she's saying, look at the looking glass. You know, I wonder if the world on the other side of the looking glass is different, what it, what it actually looks like. And she holds up a book, and she's like, well, I know that they have books because I can see it, but the words are all different, so something must be off. And then she keeps going, and she picks up the cat, and she says, cat, I wonder if you were on the other side of the looking glass, what you would see there. I wonder if they would feed you milk and if the milk would even taste good at all or if it would just be kind of bad. And then she magically is transported into the other side of the looking glass as one does in Victorian era novels. So, but across the looking glass, everything is backwards and off and just kind of wrong. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to step through the looking glass what does it look like on the other side of the lives that we've just seen laid out, the lives filled with forgiveness, with faith, with joy? What's it look like on the other side? And Paul tells us about it in Romans 3, verses 10 through 20. So you, most of you probably don't even have to flip a page. If you're on your phones, you probably do. But look at the chapter before, verse 10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Righteous, if you're not sure, righteous means just, means a holy justice, a justice that only somebody can give that is set apart, that is pure, and that knows what true justice actually means. That's what righteousness is. No one is just. No one is holy, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. Seeking means to search for. Not just like casually, you know, sometimes you lose something and you're like, Eh, maybe I'll find it. No, it's actually like digging deep in things, trying to find it, searching everywhere that you can for wisdom. No one is searching. No one is seeking for God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Useless means unable to be used. It's not just that, like, you're not worth much, which would be kind of mean. But it means that your character is so bad that you are unable to be used by God. The product that would be coming out is not something that God can use to bring about what it is that he's up to. All have become useless. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies and snake venom drips from their lips. Uh, this is quite a uh, word picture that we're getting painted for us right here, right? Uh, you know, we've, we've probably all had bad breath, but this is a whole nother level up. Um, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Can I ask you a question? What's coming out for you? You know, I think if there's anything, you know, honestly out of this that we could like, especially in our world today that we could really take to heart, it's this critique. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. For many of us, this is what flows out 
without kind of realizing it is, is bitterness. It's, it's anger. It's uh, constant cursing of others, saying bad things about other people. What's pouring out of your heart? Does it look like that? Or does it look like what Jesus is calling us to on the other side of the mirror? When you post on social media, are you posting stuff that's a little bit more negative or a lot more negative? Or are you posting stuff that's uplifting and pointing people to Jesus? When you have a conversation and you're being really honest, what's pouring out? I'm not talking about frustration with life. That's normal. But I'm talking about every time that you have a conversation with somebody, the thing that's coming out is just ugly and not good. Not good for you, not good for the other person. What is coming out of your heart? There's hope in this. I'm not trying to make us all feel bad. But I do want us to to understand that what it is that comes out needs to be something that doesn't make us useless. It needs to be something that makes us useful to God. Let's keep going. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. That doesn't mean it's like a little tag-along that's behind them. It actually means that they are literally miserable all the time. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Again, this is understated language. They don't know where to find peace. No, they can't find it. It is blocked off from them. They can't find the path of peace. Is what it literally means. It's completely closed off. They have no fear of God. Fear of God means all respect, reverence, humility found in the presence of Jesus. Why can't they find the way of peace? It's because Jesus has been blocked off completely from them. By them, not by Jesus. Jesus never blocks himself off from us. But we can choose to push him away if we want to. Verse 19, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful that we are. That is not a mirror I want to look into very often. That does not fill me with hope and joy Uh, It fills me with dread. That's not a side of the looking glass that I want to be on. What's it like to be on that side of the looking glass? Well, it's a life filled with misery, with bitterness, with anger that is uncontrollable. It leaves you lost without a way to get out. Not because God isn't there, but because you've chosen to block him from being able to help you in the midst of it. But verse 21 has good news. We're not stuck there. It says, God has shown us a way to be made right with him. How can we get to the other side of the looking glass? How can we live a different way than what I've just described? How is that possible for us? What is the right way? Is it a way of bitterness or the way of hope? We'll look at verses uh, 17 through 25 of chapter 4. Back to chapter 4 with me. Again, back to Abraham. This is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life, who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason to hope, 
Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Let me tell you the full story of Abraham real quick, if I can. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were called to leave their home, to to leave everything that they knew, to take just a small amount of it with them, because they couldn't obviously take everything with them, and to go to wherever it was that God told them to go, just like Jackie referenced, to leave without knowing where the end was going to be. And so they did. They trusted God, and they went. And they ended up in a place that was known as Canaan. And one night, uh, as Abraham was sleeping, he heard God speaking to him. And God told him, come on outside of your tent. Come and talk to me, which that would be a cool invite, right? I I would be happy for that. I'll take that one. Um, You can speak to me anytime that he wants to like that. And so he calls him out and he goes and has this conversation with Abraham in, in the middle of the night sky. And he says, Abraham, look in front of you. Everything that you see, I'm going to give to your descendants, to your family. And then he says, look up at the stars. You see how many stars there are? Every single one of those stars represents one of your descendants. Your family's going to be as numerous as the stars. And then they concluded the conversation. Abraham probably went back to bed. But the thing is, is that at that point, Abraham didn't have any kids. And he didn't have kids for probably decades after that. For decades, he had nothing but this promise from God, that God was going to make him fabulously wealthy <laughs> and that he was going to give him as many kids as the stars. And he didn't have even a single child. And so several decades in, he says, fine, I'm going to make this happen on my own. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to do that. It's, it's tempting sometimes when you reach that point. But he says, I'm going to do it. And so he had a baby with one of Sarah's slaves, which is all kinds of Other things, not great, not good behavior, but that's what he did. He went and had a baby with one of Sarah's slaves, and God spoke to him. He said, Abraham, come on. You know that that's not how I work. You know that that's not the way that I'm going to do things. And then more time passed. Probably another decade to 15 years passed after that. Until finally, one day, when Sarah was way too old to have a baby, and Abraham was way too old to have been a part of the process of having a baby. They had a baby. I mean, they were beyond elderly. They were like way, way, way beyond that level at that point. And yet God answered his promise to them. When there was no hope, when his body was as good as dead, when Sarah's womb was as good as dead, God moved. Where did Abraham receive hope from in those moments? 
only from God. Sometimes we get pretty upset and frustrated with God when we feel like we're all alone. Like he's not answering us and the only hope that we have comes from him. There's nothing else that's moving in our life. There's nobody else that's speaking the right thing to us. Sometimes that's okay because we have to believe that God is actually enough in those moments. He was enough for Abraham for decades. He can be enough for us when we feel alone with no answer. But thankfully, God does usually give us hope bringers. He brings people into our life who speak hope to us. You know, it it may be a friend, a a spouse, your parents. It it could be a pastor, hopefully sometimes. Uh, It could be a spiritual director or a counselor. There could be lots of people that could bring hope into your life. Who has it been for you? You know, I read this story of a soldier in Iraq in 2003, which was not a good time to be a soldier in Iraq for many different things. And he sent this note to a, to a prayer group, and he said, Dear 24-7 prayer brothers and sisters, I'm a soldier in Iraq, and I need your prayers. In one small town, I caught the eyes of a peasant woman and felt I was looking into the eyes of Jesus. I smiled at her, and she smiled back, and the moment froze in time. I then turned and looked at a girl of eight, and she too smiled, and in her face I saw uncertainty and expectation all mixed up. We moved down the road past blown-up trucks, tanks, and cars, but the greatest thing I felt, and what I can't seem to shake, was the feeling that Jesus was saying, I'm here, and I love these people, so tread lightly. This is holy ground. I think this is a profound picture of bringing a hope bringer, because it's unlikely in all the different ways. And who's the actual hope bringer? All of them, right? I like that. Jesus works through all of them in this spot. The soldier wasn't there to bring hope. He was there for opposite reasons. Honestly, the woman and the girl were just trying to get by, trying to make it. But in that moment, Jesus decided to come and to shine his love on them in the middle of that desert as they were going by, and God used each of them in each other's life. Being a hope bringer is risky, It involves taking time to show God's love, and it's focused on learning what God's heart is for other people. So how can we do this? Well, here's the first thing. We need to take time to bring hope to other people around us, to be present in the midst of other people's suffering. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorites, he says this, is there any posture that disturbs a suffering man or woman? It is aloofness. When somebody's suffering, the last thing they need is aloofness. You to feel distant, to not have the time to be able to stand with them and to show love to them. Hope doesn't come from us creating walls around us, although it is so tempting. Hope comes from us remaining intentionally vulnerable. Are you willing to be intentionally vulnerable for those that are around you? To, to open yourself up to the possibility of of feeling some of their pain so that you can show Jesus to them. The second thing is that we have to point people to tomorrow. It's not with fantasy or avoidance, which is usually how we point people to tomorrow. Just think about something else. Just keep moving on. But with belief in God who has the power to do something in their life. 
N.T. Wright said, he said, Abraham looked at his good as dead body, but he didn't grow weak in faith. He didn't waver in unbelief. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, believing completely that God had the power to do what he promised. Hope makes it possible to look beyond right now and to see what God's going to do. Hope offers a vision of Jesus when all we see around us is death. Hope offers a vision of the kingdom of God when what we see around us is nothing like heaven. It doesn't make us, it doesn't give us this special skill that allows us to avoid or to look a different direction or to pretend like it's not there. It gives us the ability to look through suffering, to look through pain, and to see the cross, to see Jesus, to see hope for tomorrow. That is what Jesus wants to give to us. Hope isn't optimism, though, it's a choice to keep looking ahead at the promise that Jesus has given to us and to move towards that in the middle of what it is that we're struggling with. And maybe, maybe you struggle with this. Maybe today you feel hopeless. Honestly, I would expect that some of us here do. It's pretty normal. You struggle to believe that God's going to do what he promised, probably because you've had so many fits and starts, and you felt like he was going to do it, and then he didn't, and then you're like, okay, I'm still back here again. Maybe, you know, you've, you've been sick for years, and you feel like Jesus has told you that he's going to heal you, and you're like, well, I've been praying, I've been silently suffering, I've been standing here asking, and nothing has happened in its decades, it's been years, it's been so long, and I'm struggling to still have hope that he's going to do it. Maybe you've been praying for people in your life to come to know Jesus, and it's been years, and you're saying, God, I'm tired of praying the same prayer over and over again. When are you going to do something? Maybe you or somebody you love is struggling with addiction and you've gone through the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows over and over and over again. And you're saying, God, I've asked you to heal them. And I believe that you've said that you're going to, that you're going to heal this person, that you're going to heal me. And yet nothing is happening. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. But he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever it is that he promises, period. That's what we attach ourselves to. And this is, I believe, a word from Jesus to some of us, even though there's no logical reason to keep hoping that we still have his promise because we're convinced that God is able to do whatever it is that he's promised to us because a God who can make an old woman pregnant, who can heal a blind person completely, who can heal people who have been sick for decades, who can raise people from the dead, that God is able to keep the promise to you that he made no matter how long You've been saying, when are you going to show up? He's able to do so much more than we ever imagine. Heidi Baker is another woman I admire for her extremeness. Uh, and she wrote this. 
Sometimes we feel foolish dreaming the sorts of dreams that God puts in our hearts. Our truest dreams always look too big for us. We might start trying to paddle a kayak alone to islands many miles away, only to find the task is much harder than we ever knew. Nonetheless, we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Continue to carry your promises faithfully. Nurture them as they grow. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's never too late. God is the one who can take the barren woman in her old age and make her fruitful for the first time. He can take the most barren and broken life and in it plant a glorious new promise along with all the strength that is needed to carry it to full term. Amen. So worship team comes on up. I want to invite you to stand and pray. And I want to pray for God to do in us what I just read uh, from Heidi Baker, that God will plant something in us, that he will water something in us if it feels dead and dry, that he will restore in us what it is that we need so that we can again see his promise move, so we can be aware of his movement and have hope in our lives. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the ultimate hope bringer. That you're the one who moves in the midst of impossible situations. And Jesus, I know some of us here feel like we are in impossible situations. We've been sick for too long. We've been crying out for too much. We've been struggling for too long. And we feel like Abraham must have at those points. Body dead. Dreams feel dead. But the good news is, is that your promise is still alive. Your word is still true. It's still moving. It's still active. And so, Jesus, I just pray for us right now that you will come and pour water on hope that feels dead. That you will bring life to promises that feel like they're gone. That you will restore the things that we know on our, on our own we're not able to restore, but we believe that you've told us that you're going to move in the midst of. Jesus, we ask for you to move and come and do the impossible because you're the God who time and time again over thousands of years has repeatedly done the impossible. So we look to you, and we ask for more. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.